pain is terrible, but surely you need not have fear as well. Can you not see death as a friend and deliverer? What is there to be afraid of? Your sins are confessed and absolved. Has the world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. <laughs> this is Pints with Jack, Season 7, Episode 7. Yours, Jack. Letters to an American Lady, Part 4. Dear Pints with Jack listeners, thank you for downloading this episode of Pints with Jack, the podcast where we discuss the work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading some of Lewis's letters, which have been brought together in several different collections. In Season 7, we'll read his correspondence with Mary Willis Shelburne, found in Letters to an American Lady, as well as his letters to children, and his exchange of Latin letters with St. Giovanni Calabria. Today is our last episode going through Letters to an American Lady. We'll be covering the final period of Lewis's correspondence with Mary, from 1961 to 1963, an exchange which came to a conclusion at Lewis's death. All blessings, Andrew, David, and Matt. Ready to wrap things up today, gentlemen? (laughs) (laughs) Well, not as ready as I was half an hour ago. (laughs) Let me pour a drink, though. Uh, What's that quote, Lord? You have the Serenity quote, but it's a funny play off it. Give me caffeine to change the things I can change and alcohol to accept the things I can't. <laughs> Listeners, we spent 35 minutes getting the audio equipment figured out. Satan does not want this recording to happen, but we're here. And you know what? It is, I'm very looking forward to this. I was thinking about this. The last part of this is an incredibly wise saint-like human who is, has a number of reflections on death in a kind of an indirect way. He's dying. What are the things he writes about? We're going to have a theme of forgiveness in here in a pretty big sense. Yeah. I mean, it is really cool to have this front row seat to uh, an individual discussing a, a, a personal friendship right before he knows he's going to die, probably within 12, 18 months. And so he's writing with that in mind. And you do see a sense of a little bit of a difference. So I'm excited. I'm ready to wrap this baby up. Well, and I too am excited. Um, um, just this last week from part of my biography and graduate work, uh, the end of Walter Hooper's um, Hooper and Green's biography, expanded biography of Lewis. And it had these very poignant scenes of his last few days. And so uh, it kind of prepared me for this as well. Mm. Well, what's everyone drinking today? I am drinking a Bushmill Irish whiskey Ooh. and with Coke. Because I'm being lame. Oh, oh, oh! I can't unhear uh, that. I would just like to add that we are not drinking in the morning today. We are sneaking this one in. <laughs> not currently drinking in the morning. <laughs> this is Quite a good right. caveat to make. It's highly unlikely. If you hear us drinking, we're not doing the 9 a.m. recording. Let's just set that straight. Most likely assume that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I just in the mail today received our gift from Bud and I stopped mm. into the uh to our local liquor store right there on our on Plant Street, our main drag, and met Jason, the new owner. There we go. Uh, <laughs> the new owner of Tony's Liquors. And he does not have the Lagavulin or the Laforig 18, but uh maybe they'll have some in Sarasota. So I'm doing the Offerman Lagavulin 11 again from the decanter. Mm. Lovely. Well, cheers. Cheers. Wow, your artificial clinks sound good to sound like mine. 
<laughs> Yours sounds a little cleaner. And my whiskey tastes cleaner than Matt's, too. <laughs> no Coke in mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lay it on thick. I get it. <laughs> right, so we complete the final part of our journey. Mm. In the opening letter of 1961, Jack talks about what to do with uh, imperfect penitence would probably be the best way of putting it. When you're dealing with somebody that is uh, saying sorry, but maybe imperfectly. Uh, Mm. Because there seems to be some kind of reconciliation between Mary and some unknown party or parties. Once again, I'm assuming it's something within her family. Uh, But she doesn't seem convinced uh, of their apology. And Jack tells her that whatever she does, it must be done, he, he describes it, with perfect charity and courtesy. And she needs to get her own attitude right, chiefly by recognizing that even if their penitence is imperfect and their motives mm-hmm. are mixed, uh, that her own penitence and motives are also very often imperfect and mixed. The Lord says, forgive as you'd wish to be forgiven. And he says, try not to think, much less speak of their sins. One's own Mm. are a much more profitable theme. And if on consideration (laughs) one finds no faults on one's own side, then cry for mercy, for this must Mm. be a most dangerous delusion. Yes. Well, the situation is actually that she has moved in with her daughter and son-in-law. And that's what Lewis means um, that, uh, well, she's deciding about whether to do it and she ends up doing it. Um, he says, this is a, only a choice between crosses. So it's not a very helpful <laughs> prospect, but, um, but he does, I think have some, um, have some great advice. He says it is no disguising it, only a choice between crosses. The more one can accept that fact, the less one can think about happiness on earth, the less I believe one suffers. So the more you accept your cross, the less you think about happiness on earth, the less you suffer. And actually, in just um, a year or so, Lewis will write his last essay. And uh, it's the last thing published before he died, I believe. It's called an essay called We Have No Right to Happiness. Mm. Which isn't quite the downer that it sounds, I do have to add. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> I just love this letter. I mean, it started out this episode with a bang, but... Lewis is just so good at, I mean, I don't even know how to put this into words. A frightening statement for a podcaster. (laughs) I know. I know. I I just, I guess I read this and I read, there's a number of things in here. He talks about this concept actually in more depth later on as well. But he's just so good at making you shift your perspective. Like pointing out to you that you aren't as charitable as you think you aren't as good as you think you are like putting it on yourself. It's hard to be, it's, it makes it easy to then look at someone else and go, wait, you know, I really should just cut them some slack. Mm -hmm. They, they're, yeah, their penitence isn't perfect. Would mine have been, I mean, how often have I gone to confession to our Lord, which is like guaranteed forgiveness and still somehow justified my actions uh, leading up to it. Like I can't even do a perfect penance to the perfect, the person who's going to guaranteed give me perfect absolution. And yet, uh, what do we think we do with humans? I don't know. I just, I love this. It was, it really actually hit me. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And for those of you who don't know, penitence is that feeling of um, being sorry. It's when you repent you feel penitent, you feel regret as if you want to turn from the way you had been going and go a different way. Penance, uh, in the classical sense, is what you do about it. So as an act of penance, I may go and 
make restitution, but penitence is the feeling of being sorry. By Lewis's next letter, Mary has made her decision to proceed, so she's going to move in with her daughter, and Lewis offers her this beatitude as she moves in with her daughter. Blessed are they that expect little, for they shall not be disappointed. Uh, if anyone would like to send that to me as a cross stitch, I will uh, put that up in my office. <laughs> <laughs> Give that to your wife for a Christmas gift. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no. I already know what I'm get, get, getting you at possibly a, a, a future event. Um, but let's, let's move on. Uh, well, I say get it for you. I'm actually getting it for someone else. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> She's going to be listening to this. He speaks about the handling of his own stepsons, and he offers the maxim, when in doubt, what to do or say, do or say nothing. And he admits, I do so easily meddle and gas, so I, I interfere and I talk and talk and talk. And he says, when all the time what will really influence them, for good or for ill, is not anything I do or say, but what I am. Mm. And I would say, this is gold for all parents mm. out there. One of my friends, he is a pastor of a local Presbyterian church, and I asked him, how do you raise good kids? Because I've met his kids, and I, I, he's doing something right. He offered a few pieces of advice, but he ended by saying, but really, in the end, if you want to have kids who are virtuous, you've got to be virtuous yourself. He says, they're going to turn out like you. So if you oh. want to shape them, become a better man. So needless to say, I picked up the check for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that so true in every aspect of life? Like they say, be the person you want to attract with your spouse. Be the mm. person you want your kids to be like. If you want to be a good mm. leader, going to a leadership summit for a weekend is not going to probably equip you to become a good leader. Just becoming a good, virtuous human being is probably far better. And your employees will mimic that. It's like every aspect of life. It's not anything I do or say, but what I am. There's a wonderful moment in the um, in the four disc D four DVD um, collector's edition of Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe. There's a marvelous biography of Lewis. It includes an, it interviews with a number of folks, including um, some some nice snippets from Douglas Gresham, who says um, that Lewis was the best person that he had ever met. And he says, "I don't know what kind of man I would have I would be like if I hadn't known Jack, but I can tell you this: I wouldn't be much good at all." And so what Lewis was hoping for here actually seems to come seems to have come true, at least uh, by Doug's estimation. In this letter, Jack also cites William Law, an 18th century Church of England priest, uh, who had some very good pieces of advice. And I'm going to I'm going to read them. And you could be very easily um, forgiven for thinking that this directly comes from Lewis, because there are echoes of this in multiple books. So mm. the first is, there can be no sure proof of a confirmed pride than a belief that one is sufficiently humble. <laughs> That's right out of mere Christianity. And the other one was, I earnestly beseech all who conceive they have suffered an affront to believe that it is very much less than they suppose. Mm. Ah. What a great rule of thumb. That comes yeah. from a, a, a book with the very snappy title, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. <laughs> yeah, but uh, given the fact that Lent starts just two months from uh, the fourteenth, uh, that might be uh, William Law's book, A Serious Call. Uh, Lewis cites it many times, and that mm. might be a good Lenten reading. So I I don't know, read maybe this. the three of us try to read it together. Yeah, yeah. that that second quote is phenomenal. 
uh, to be honest. Um, it's, it's kind of tr- calling me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are a couple of other interesting bits in this letter. He mentions a common friend, Father Darcy, who was a Roman Catholic priest, philosopher of love, is how Wikipedia mm. describes him. And he was connected with a bunch of literary and artistic figures at the time. Also, apparently Mary's vet has offered a psychological diagnosis for her cat. And (laughs) Lewis Riley remarks, I have a great respect for cats. They are very shrewd people and would probably see through the analyst a good deal better than he'd see through them. (laughs) There will be more cat talk (laughs) in this episode. Uh, But Matt, you had some thoughts on the March letter. Well, this actually connects to your first letter. And let let me preface this by this made me think of one of my favorite movies on Golden Pond and the scene <laughs> where the mother is, the grandmother is talking to the grandson and is just like, you know, sometimes you have to look at people and know that they're doing the best they can. So here's the quote. Let me start with this. Humans are very seldom either totally sincere or totally hypocritical. Their moods change, their motives are mixed, and they're often themselves quite mistaken as to what their motives are. That stuck out to me because at first I think it's a very charitable approach towards people. You know, we can we can very easily attribute negative motives to people that don't have negative motives or maybe negative is part of it, but there's other stuff in there. We don't know what's going on in their lives. It's just a really good way to approach situations. Kind of made me think of that classic tripe platitude or something. Don't attribute to malice that which can be attributed to stupidity. I <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, felt like there was something a little bit similar there. Yeah. Well, and Lewis says that a lot of problems can be solved by thinking the very best one can of of Mm. another. That's good. Well, in April, Jack has some kind of virus. And uh, in June's letter, we've got some more advice on letting go. Uh, And this is is straight out of the Screwtape letters, really. He says, we must beware of the past. Any fixing of the mind on old evils beyond what is absolutely necessary for repenting our own sins and forgiving those of others is certainly useless and usually bad for us. And Mm. he notes that the constant obsession with the wrongs of the past is uh, something found among the damned in Dante's Inferno. Well, this Mm -hmm. is not only screw tape. This is great divorce. Mm-hmm. of after after the murder repents his sin i mean you, you, the person who's been harmed by it needs to just let it go mm. which is why it's until we have faces i mean the regret <laughs> that orwell has you know he, lewis is clearly um, clearing his throat with great divorce in order to uh, <laughs> to perfect this <laughs> um and i was struck by this line i'm i'm sure i imagine the two of you weren't but that is one of the dangers of being like you and me old there's so much past now, isn't there? And so little else. Um, but we must try hard not to keep on endlessly chewing the cud. We must look forward more eagerly to sloughing that old skin off forever. Metaphor is getting a bit mixed here, but you know what I mean. Um, and it's strange. I'll be 58 in uh, two weeks. And I, it, I, I'm kind of shocked that I'm that old and that <laughs> By almost any measure, most of my life is behind me. Um, there's there's virtually no way that I will uh, that I have more time yet to live than uh, than I have already lived. And so this starts to strike uh, more and more closely. There's so much past, but also the past is littered with the grace of God. And so I can see by this backwards glance how good God has been to me. And if He has been that good in the past, um, He will see me safely home as well. 
We're going to miss you, Andrew. <laughs> What's that, Sonny? What's that? <laughs> Let me put in my T-shirt so I can hear you. Well, I was actually just going to point out that you've only known us for six or seven years. Three, years. And so, you know, the majority of your life might be behind you, but clearly the best is yet to come. <laughs> it's true. And one of the things that I say when I meet a new friend is, uh, is, and I'm just struck by the sentiment, I'm glad that most of our friendship is still before us. Mm. You have so much time to annoy me ahead. <laughs> well, it's such an easy task. <laughs> <laughs> well, the letter in July is actually from Warney rather than Jack. Mm -hmm. and he says that Jack is in hospital, and so there's going to be a delay in his response. And mm -hmm. Warney sends another letter in August, giving an update on Jack's health. And Warney writes one more letter saying that while Jack is improving, he's very tired. He's had a series of blood transfusions, but he is now back home at the kilns. And there will be an operation in the future, but not right now, which Warney takes to be a good sign. Yeah. A couple of things to notice about this. We find out later in the series that Jack is suffering from anemia, uh, which is why he's getting the blood transfusions. So he has more iron in his blood. Um, the operation, and this is what kills Jack. So he's got kidney disease. And it's before dialysis. Uh, the first dialysis machine, I think, is in 65, a couple of years after Jack dies. Um, but he also has a weak heart, especially because there's shrapnel near his heart. And so what ends up causing his death in a couple of years is he needs a kidney operation, which he cannot have because it would put too much danger on his heart. And so he dies of kidney disease. And that operation, long hoped for, uh, never happens and um, and that's you know that's part of why Jack goes. It seems preternaturally early to me. He's a a, a week shy of his sixty fifth birthday. We know many people, I'm sure, in our six in their sixties and seventies and eighties who are still living vibrant lives. And it seems rather young, but you get the sense, especially in these letters and in some of Lewis's other ones, that he's ready to go. And he says to Warney a couple of weeks before he dies, I've done all that I uh, have come to do. Um, and so he has a sense that God has finished using him in the role that he's used him. And uh, and now he's ready to die. And there's a great deal of peace that um, that he has with that. And that's a blessing for me, especially in light of the great grief that he's still experiencing having lost joy the year before. Hmm. And a couple of days before the Christmas of 1961, Lewis returns to the writing desk just to say that his health isn't making much progress. Um, and he also notes how impressed he's been with No Man is an Island by Thomas Merton. I've mm -hmm. read extracts from that and definitely liked it. Have either of you read it? No. I think years and years and years ago, and I think I also read Seven Story Mountain. Mm. Um, I wasn't impressed, but I probably wasn't old enough for the book yet. So... <laughs> My exact sentiment. I also read Seven Story Mountain, wasn't impressed, and I just have to assume that's a fault in me and the 20-year-old that was reading it. Well, and I really do believe, um, I mean, Lewis said that he'd never read more than a page and a half of a book he didn't enjoy, although he had read so much. I do believe that sometimes we read books and we aren't old enough for them. And so rather than disliking them, I just say, maybe I need to grow. I, I'm ashamed to say and surprised that my wife agreed to marry me uh, in spite of this fact, but it took me 25 years to finish Pride and Prejudice. 
You know, I started it at eight, as an 18-year-old and just didn't get it. And by the time I finished it at 43, I'm like, this is hilarious. I love Jane Austen. <laughs> so it was badly done, Andrew. Badly done. All right. That's a reference. I did to the Hannah, best that still. I <laughs> I did the best that I could, and I didn't give up on it. Well, let's move into 1962. So things don't kick off great. Uh, things don't seem too well with Mary. And in this letter, Lewis mentioned a dipsomaniac, so alcoholic, retired major who refuses to try AA on the grounds that, quote, it would be full of retired majors. Andrew, is he talking about Warney here or someone else? I'm almost certain that he's talking about Warney. And in fact, Walter told me once that um, when they got ready to move Warney out of the kilns and sold the house, um, when they cleared off the tops of the bookcases, what they found was hundreds of little empty alcohol bottles and dozens and dozens of AA pamphlets. So we think that Warney had um, tossed the empty alcohol bottles up there, maybe to hide the evidence. Um, and I wonder if maybe Jack and Joy, I mean, Joy was particularly sensitive to alcoholism. Her husband, mm -hmm. her marriage ended in part because of her husband's alcoholism. Um, so I wonder if Jack or Joy kind of brought these AA pamphlets to Warney and he was resistant of that. Um, I think that a, a profitable study could be done of Lewis as an Al-Anon, Lewis as a, a as a codependent, somebody who loves an alcoholic and struggles with that. I think some of Lewis's helping may come from come from that. Hmm. So yeah, probably the major. Hmm. Well, there isn't any more mail until April when Lewis writes to say that the operation that was looking to be scheduled at some point on his kidneys has been permanently scrapped. And as Andrew said, it is permanent. That never happens. And then he responds again in May and talks once again about trying to stay in the present moment, particularly this time during times of suffering, which is a, a new spin on this idea. He writes, the actual present is usually pretty tolerable, I think, if only we refrain from adding to its burden that of the past and the future. How right our Lord is about sufficient to the day. Hmm. <laughs> Another Honestly, echo so of screw good. tape, right? Absolutely. Uh -huh. That's been one of my, so the offering up theme has been a huge theme in this present, living in the present. Don't, he, he doesn't guarantee enough strength for the hundred of different future scenarios that you play out in your head. And if you really reflect mm -hmm. on some of your toughest situations when I do, it's always my extrapolation of them. Yes. It's always what I think is going to come. If I'm being genuinely honest in this exact moment with what's going on, it's very tolerable. And so this has been very encouraging to me personally, just to come across this theme in these letters. I also theologically and pastorally wonder and have wondered for years if maybe everybody has more or less the same, um, the same proportion of pain and grace. Now, certainly some people go through terrible, terrible things, far worse than I ever have. But then I imagine that our Lord supplies with them and supplies them with tremendous amounts of grace as well. And so I don't mean to, to cast light on anyone's suffering, but Jesus does say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And even when I was going through a terrible time of grief, I, re I did find this to be true, that sufficient to the day and that I always had strength and encouragement provided to me, not that I mustered up myself, 
from God that was enough for that day. And sometimes I would watch my watch and go, okay, bedtime's at nine o'clock. All I need to do is get through the next three or four hours. Um, but there was that grace and God will meet us. He knows what kind of machine we are trying to drive <laughs> and he'll meet us with the help that we need in every day. I believe this as, as much as is possible. Hmm. And to Matt's point, when I got married, I bought my wife a house. So I pretty much guaranteed that I would always be living in the present. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, here uh, for the week. <laughs> Try uh, the meal. Tip your servers. There was uh, one other point in this letter that I rather liked. A story which Mary told Lewis put him in mind of something which happened while he and Joy were in Crete. He tells the story of Joy giving a few coins to a malnourished girl who disappeared, but then suddenly returned with her arms full of fruit for them to eat. It's very sweet. Mm. Yes. As was the fruit. <laughs> Not the only Boom. one, buddy. <laughs> Later in May, on the Feast of the Ascension, which I believe was May 31st that year. I looked it up. Yeah. Lewis announces that the doctors have allowed him to try coming back to work. And it seems to be doing him a lot of good, even if he is, as he regards himself, permanently a semi-invalid. He's not psyched about the low-protein diet he's been forced to adopt, and he also <laughs> has to cut down his stair climbing, which he says means that he has to plan every trip downstairs as though it were an Arctic or African <laughs> expedition. <laughs> but one learns, he says, and that's so encouraging. Um, and there's also that note where he says, it must be good for my soul when there are things I really like for dinner and mustn't have them. Recently, I went through an experience and I just didn't like what was going on um, for me and was taking things as a bit of an affront. And I just remembered that phrase. I've preached about it recently too. Um, it must be frightfully good for me. Mm. And to have that phrase at the ready, when I go through something bad, I have to assume that God allowed it because it's quite good for me. And that actually helped turn my attitude around and I was smiling within the hour. <laughs> Well, Lewis was there referring to meals, and in the next letter, uh, it seems that Mary has also been put on a diet for her health. And a couple of months after this letter, Jack cheekily suggests that perhaps if both of them had done more voluntary fasting in their lives, they wouldn't have these ones imposed upon them. <laughs> I love this because it, I think there's a, a really helpful framework here for thinking about life in the sense that ultimately, if we think about how do we, let's connect this to the great divorce. Getting into heaven, we have to become a type of person. Of course, there's going to be God's grace upon the process. Obviously, there's a debate about purgatory and the role that that plays. But nevertheless, whatever you believe, at the end of the day, none of hell or those parts of ourselves are going to be able to go into heaven. Mm -hmm. And so when you, look, when, you, when you start with that, as he's kind of pointing out here, no matter what happens to you, whether you self- you, you kind of surrender yourself to these kind of fasts yourself or the Lord puts them on you, no matter what, they're a grace because they're mortifying some part of yourself. And I feel like mm -hmm. that just helps a lot with the offering up of the struggling. Um, it helps with just like, okay, did I do something wrong to get this? I mean, yeah, you might've been holding on to something that you weren't letting go. So you could, but I wouldn't phrase it as you did something wrong. I would phrase it as the Lord mm -hmm. is loving you so hard right mm -hmm. now in this mm -hmm. moment. Um, <laughs> I think that's beautiful. Yeah. 
I need to speak into this pastorally. Um, did yeah. I do something wrong to deserve this? F I, although, t however tempting that that sentiment is, I think fundamentally denies what has been accomplished in the cross. And I was telling my men's Bible study guys just just last night, uh, the night before last, last night, um, God isn't angry at us anymore. Yep. God isn't even frustrated with us because Christ paid for all of those sins. Does God discipline us? Yes. Mm -hmm. But he does he ever discipline us like those, you know, we see videos sometimes of these terrible parents who are disciplining out of anger. He is not angry with us anymore. The mm -hmm. cost of that was his son on the cross. But he is not angry or even frustrated with us. And so when I'm angry or frustrated with myself, that must be another voice besides the voice of God. Yes. Now, does that mean I don't mess up? I mess up all the time. Does that mean that I will that God will keep me from all all consequences? Of course not. He will allow us to face the consequences. And Hebrews says he disciplines those he loves, even though no discipline seems pleasant at the time. But he isn't angry. He didn't allow this to, to happen to you because you did the bad thing. All of that was paid for at the cross. Nevertheless, there are consequences to our behavior, and God will discipline us, which is why I find so much hope in Lewis's statement, this must be frightfully good for me. So yes. anything untoward in my life is what God has allowed and that he will deliver me from. And the more I depend on him and the more I keep sight of his love for me, even in those untoward moments, those unpleasant moments, I think the closer I get to becoming the person that he wants me to be. Mm. Thus endeth the lesson. <laughs> no, I think I like I like the word loving consequences. Like our actions can yeah. lead to consequences, but they're completely out of love for our benefit. And honestly, they're a gift. We should rejoice in them. Yeah. Well, he comments on something at the end of this letter, which anyone who takes daily medicine will recognize. The situation when one can't remember <laughs> if one has already taken the medicine and then having the dilemma as to whether one should risk missing a dose or double dosing. And as someone that takes blood pressure medication, I know this quite well. <laughs> <laughs> His last letter in July features more cat talk. He says, yes, it is strange that anyone should dislike cats, but cats themselves are the worst offenders in this respect. They very seldom seem to like one another. <laughs> and he also reflects on how men and women react to illness. I'm just going to read this, this section. I just thought this was fascinating. I'm not sure how much of it I agree with, but I thought it was fascinating. He says, I have a notion that apart from actual pain, men and women are quite diversely affected by illness. To a woman, one of the great evils about it is that she can't do things. To a man, or anyway, a man like me, I think that's an important qualification, mm -hmm. the great consolation is the reflection, well, anyway, no one can demand that I should do anything. I have often <laughs> had the fancy that one stage in poetry might be a big kitchen in which things are always going wrong. Milk boiling over, crockery getting smashed, toast burning, animal stealing. The women have to learn to sit still and mind their own business. The men have to learn to jump up and do something about it. When both sexes have mastered this exercise, they go on to the next. And actually, in a later letter, he says that both sexes must be told to mind your own business, but in two different mm. senses. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, we need to, to combine the Marys and the Marthas within, our, within us, don't we? Mm-hmm. And Jack ends by saying that he's improving physically, 
but that his improvements make him miss joy more. Hmm. And from the September letter, we discover that Mary and Jack are in opposite situations. She's fearing the possibility of an operation, and he's fearing that his operation will never happen. I do want to just mention a couple of things about the September letter, which um, I, I really enjoyed. He says, nausea is horrible, isn't it? Worse than all but really severe pain. At least it dominates the mind and the emotions more. I know only too well the knowledge of one's acts have contrary to one's intention, led to all sorts of dreadful consequences, that's a heavy burden. But it is a burden of regret and humiliation, isn't it, rather than of guilt. So he distinguishes between um, regret and humiliation from guilt, and that's a helpful distinction he's defining and describing. And I had also never thought about of nausea as one of the worst things that one can experience except great pain. How carefully he observes even his own uh, his own illness and sickness um, is just, just incredibly helpful to me. I have a wife that has a very bad morning sickness for the first trimester. I know all about nausea and how mm. horrible it is. Well, I don't know all about <laughs> yes, it. She do. knows all about well, it. I just look at it from the outside. She... I, I'm looking at rather yes. than looking along. <laughs> Yes, if you were really a loving husband, you would throw up for her. I've tried. <laughs> well, in October, we learn that Mary really seems to be suffering at the hands of her doctors, but Jack picks things up with yet more cat talk. He writes, I can't understand the people who say cats are not affectionate. Our Siamese is almost suffocatingly so. True, our ginger Tom, we mentioned him earlier, a great Don Juan and a mighty hunter before the Lord will take no notice of me, <laughs> but he will of others. He thinks I'm not quite socially up to his standards and makes this very clear. No creature can give such a crushing snub as a cat. <laughs> you know, that's, that's from, I'm different than Lewis. I don't like cats, and I think <laughs> they are not affectionate at all. Yeah. Well, if your uh, if your intended likes them, I think that you'll grow to like them. I love though how he calls the Siamese his step cat because it was one that Joy I think brought into mm. marriage. At the end of the letter too, I found out what I wanted to put on my gravestone. He was a grand young chap, sweet as a nut, and absolutely sincere. No fool either. <laughs> well, me too. He's a great of- Don Juan and a mighty hunter before the Lord. Here lies David Bates. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, Marie will probably get to choose it, so uh, I'll have to I'll have to put in the order now. Otherwise, that's not happening. <laughs> there is one other thing in this letter that I wanted just to focus on for a moment. Jack mentions Seventh Day Adventists and admits that he doesn't really understand their beliefs, despite having a long conversation with uh, a, pra- a practitioner, um, a member of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. And I'm actually reading Warney's letters at the moment, and he admits the same sort of ignorance. But it's this line. He later says, if they have so much charity, there must be something very right about them. Mm -hmm. And I love this. I love the fact that he looks at charity and concludes that if he sees somebody that is very charitable, there has to be something about them that is very right. That's not necessarily approving of every person's doctrine, just if they're a good person, but seeing the charity and recognizing that there is some goodness there uh, and possibly some goodness that we'd we'd do well to imitate. Absolutely. And I think that you judge the tree by its fruits. And 
charity in the sense that Lewis intends it, you know, unconditional love uh, is certainly impossible to cultivate without the Lord, as we found out last season in The Four Loves. And so, yeah, there must be something good. I have known wonderful, wonderful Seventh-day Adventists and had great fellowship with many of them. So I'm glad that Jack did too. In October, Mary tells Lewis about her father's view on giving alms, and Lewis concurs. He says this, It will not bother me in the hour of death to reflect that I have been had for a sucker by any number of impostors. But it would be a torment to know one had refused even one person in need. After all, the parable of the sheep and the goats makes our duty perfectly plain, doesn't it? Another thing that annoys me is when people say, Why did you give that man money? He'll probably go and drink it. My reply is, but if I'd kept it, I should probably have drunk it. Uh, this, this is, uh, this is the, particularly the last part is a line that's often quoted and uh, brings forward some serious thoughts. What do you guys think about it? Well, I was actually going to ask you guys your thoughts on it, but I wanted to add to it. You know, there's another scenario. It's not just you gave to someone deeply in need or you were had for a sucker by an imposter. There's this, there's a third scenario that's very real today with addiction uh, that you could have given to someone that it caused their death. Um, and there's people that are truly addicted to drugs and to substances. And I think prudence is important in this decision. I don't really know what the morality is of these kind of things. So I'm not going to pretend to other than I think the approach that I've taken here is in, in Grand Rapids is pretty decent homeless population is I have a certain amount that I've discerned and prayed that I give to the three homeless shelters every single month. And so when I cross someone on the street, I, I encourage them to go there and share with them. And I've actually had a number of people say to me, oh, thank you so much. Actually, that place helped me a lot. And so that's the approach I've personally taken. Um, but there's times, yeah, I feel callous when I walk by people hmm. and I don't really know what to do. So this is something that I have a fair bit of experience with, um, especially with my uh, the the time that I've spent in recovery um, in Al-Anon for codependence. Um, mm. And uh, yes, there is a danger of what they call enabling. To enable an alcoholic is to you know enable them to get drink. Um, nevertheless, Lewis lived with alcoholism and knew it firsthand. Um, who am I to say? that if I give them some money and they spend it on, on drink, and that might become the drink that brings them to their bottom and brings them to the point where they know that they need help. And so it's up to the Lord um, to do that, although the dangers of enabling alcoholism are, are absolutely real. I love his humility. Now, we've heard, I, I've heard Walter Hooper tell this story a number of times, that he heard Jack say the same thing. Why did you why did you give him money? He's likely going to drink it. And Jack said, well, if I had kept it, I was sure to have done so. Um, so I don't think it's Jack trying to encourage alcoholism. In fact, he's under great misery, as we see in these letters from the alcoholism that he lives with. Nevertheless, it's up to God to deal with uh, to, to, to deal with this. And also, I'm just deeply troubled by the fact that Jesus does not give us an out. He says, give to anyone who asks of you. And he doesn't say, unless they're going to spend it on booze. Right? Mm -hmm. So, Matt, one of the things that you might want to do what about, is just carry... Quick, can, we, can we rephrase this real quick to drugs, like cocaine, meth, those kind of things, rather than... I think drink's sure. easy to kind of belittle a little bit, because it's like, oh, it's not going to kill you. It might cause alcoholism. But in today's days, where you have overdosing sure. of like 200,000 with homeless sure. people, I feel sure. like 
that 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 might be a little bit more. I love the fact though that you are reaching out to homeless. You're supporting homeless shelters. One of the things that you may do is carry with you. Um, and a ministry I used to be part of, um, they had a homeless ministry and served breakfast in the mornings, but they would pass mm-hmm. out a business card with the address of the ministry um, and directions and times when they yeah. had the breakfast, and they would have them taped to a packet of, of you know cheese crackers. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody's asking me for money, I can maybe give them, here's a, you know, here's some bus, here's a bus token, and here's some, here's a little bit of food, and here's a way that you can go and find some help. And so there certainly are some ways to prepare in advance to give to those who ask, you know, tape a card to the local, you know, soup kitchen or whatever, um, to, um, to a bottle of water, you know, and give it in Jesus name. So, um, but our Lord doesn't let us off the hook. Yeah. Yeah, There's a great ministry here that lets you, um, buy these little coupons that can only be exchanged at their place. Uh, the homeless shelter. Um, yeah. And I agree. He doesn't let us off the hook. I think. Sometimes his answer is prudence and intent. Like if I see someone literally overdosing, I'm probably not going to hand them a whole bunch of cash and their overdosage. I think he might not sure. let me off the hook on that bad decision. No, no. I think we just have to, I don't, it's not really an answer, but I think prudence is obviously a, a fruit and a gift from the father and just kind of asking what that is. But I do think today it's easy to use that as an excuse to do nothing. <laughs> like, oh, it's too. Um, so it can very much, so you have to kind of hold it in tension there of like, all right, go both ways. With my discretionary fund, I have money every month um, from the congregation that I can use for charitable purposes. And um, I go to the Wawa, which is a chain of, of, uh, of, of gas stations, um, mm-hmm. and I buy their gift cards. You can't spend their gift cards on alcohol or tobacco, but they have That's food and they have gas. And so I have a whole stash of them. And this makes me mindful that I should probably carry a few in my wallet mm-hmm. so that if somebody asks, I can give them at least some food that's within walking distance of them. That was an excellent discussion. Didn't have to say a word. (laughs) (laughs) If that's the definition of an excellent discussion. (laughs) Oh, it is for me. Well, in the rest of this letter, Lewis has been asked to contribute an article on medieval romance for the New Catholic Encyclopedia, but he's declined due to workload. It also seems that Mary's dog has died. And Lewis spends a little bit of time reflecting on the subject of animal suffering, something that, mm-hmm. as a writer, I think he does much better than most. Uh, but on a more lighthearted note, he asks Mary, and what is a wool can opener? It suggests either opening a tin by means of a wool, or opening a wool by means of a tin, and both sound very strange operations. <laughs> In November, he talks about living alone, quote, with all its miseries and dangers, both moral and physical as well as living in community with, quote, all the rubs and frustrations of a joint life. I hope one is rewarded for all the stunning replies one thinks of but does not utter. Yes. There's also an ellipse at the end of this letter. We are all fallen creatures and all very hard to live with. And the sentence that is missing, it is not only Episcopalians who behave as if they have never read St. James. (laughs) Are you proud of me? I really wanted to make that the quote of the week. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's Catholics. The Episcopalians have read a lot more Bible than the Catholics have. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Luther thought it was an epistle of straw. I just figured you guys would be copying him. All right, <laughs> let's move on. In a letter later that month, he talks about animal suffering a little bit more and references his book, The Problem of Pain. And he also talks about the danger of spiritual evils. 
covering much of the material that we find in mere Christianity that Matt and I spoke mm-hmm. about in season one. That, that made a real impression on us. But he ends the year with a letter about a topic discussed before, ancient lineages, but also about dependence. And regarding that, he writes, poverty merely reveals the helpless dependence which has all the time been our real condition. We are members of one another, whether we choose to recognize the fact or not. Mm. And I detect a little bit of an influence of Thomas Merton in that statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one has never been independent. Always in some mode or another or other, one has lived on others, economically, intellectually, spiritually. Yes, we are all dependent on uh, on on the gifts of our betters, and that that's an indicator of the cross and and of our Lord. Uh, these letters are poignant to me because this is ten December sixty two, and a year he will have been buried for a few weeks by now. He ends the year by talking about his health. I get on fairly well. My chief concern is the difficulty in sleeping at night and keeping awake by day. Perhaps I'm turning into a nocturnal animal. Bat? Wolf? Owl? Let's hope it be an owl, the bird of wisdom. And I always was attracted by mice. (laughs) You know, he had mice who visited him in his room, Mm. uh, in his rooms in Maudlin. And so uh, they had gotten in the walls or whatever, and I think he even fed them and welcomed them. Yeah, we're going to read about that in Letters to Children. It's, it's one of my favorite lines yes. that he writes. <laughs> uh, but now we enter 1963. Uh, I'm going to move mostly quickly through, all, through a lot of the things that happen. I just want to point out some of the things that happened. You two feel free to jump in if there's anything that you want to focus on. Um, in January, he writes about uh, beauty and asks, do women value beauty in men? Uh, my wife would obviously say yes. Uh, (laughs) Later in January, he chastises Mary. He says, I don't mind betting that the things which had to be done in your room didn't really have to be done at all. Very few things really do. What worse than inconvenience would have resulted if, if you had left those things undone? Do take more care of yourself and less of things. That seems to be a, a, a perennial thing he's sensed in her, and it seems to be a, a common thing among the women of his acquaintance that he felt that they were always trying to do things that weren't actually strictly necessary, even to the detriment mm-hmm. of their own health. There's a phrase in recovery, how important is it? <laughs> yeah. uh, in a letter at the end of January, uh, he says this, and this is something I definitely recognize. I find the best sedative if one is wakeful in the middle of the night is simply food. And that's that's definitely true for me. And my wife has regularly come down in the morning to discover some stuff that she cooked the previous night has mostly been eaten by me at, in the early hours. <laughs> uh, but he also comments that in this letter, he had to get up at 1.30 a.m. and wait for an ambulance in the snow for 20 minutes. So uh, uh, I can picture that, right? Standing at the end of Lewis Close on Kiln mm-hmm. Lane. And um, yeah, and the snow that was pitted. And yeah, must have been miserable. Yeah. In February, there's more cat talk, and he says that God has a plan, and this can be seen in helping cats. In March, he talks about animals wearing clothes, and it's very funny. It, it's, it's quite charming. And actually, in the February letter, I had starred this. The strange and terrifying things which happen to us are really for our benefit. And so even though he is in the last year of his life and he's suffering great illness and all the rest, he still acknowledges that God uh, God means for good, what, um, what others may mean for evil. 
And even this falling apart and, and his moving towards death is really a moving towards the uh, the great eternal reward. And he has sight of that. He's a resurrection person. And that gives me great hope. In April, he mentions that he's finished Letters to Malcolm. We will be doing that in a future season. Very much looking forward to it. Uh, and then in May, Lewis increases the money that he's sending to Mary. He's been sending her money as soon as he was able uh, to circumvent the, uh, the the legalities of that. And then the following month, he references the death of Pope John the Twenty Third, and how much he misses Warney. And in the June tenth letter, um, he says, "My brother is an, away in Ireland, and the ellipse omits the phrase recovering. I hope from one of his bouts." And so I think that perhaps Warney seeing Jack's decline is is dealing with it, you know, the only way that that that, that he that he figures he can. And yes, and then we come uh, to the June letter. Yeah, and then in June we come to what I regard as the letter of this book. Mm -hmm. It is probably the thing that is most often quoted, usually incorrectly, and usually devoid of context, so people don't understand what Lewis is saying. It's not just some mm -hmm. positive affirmation that tomorrow is going to be better than today. Uh, I read most of it for the quote at the beginning of the episode, but I'm going to read the the, the section of it so we can discuss it in a little bit more detail. He writes. Pain is terrible, but surely you need not have fear as well. Can you not see death as the friend and deliverer? It means stripping off that body which is tormenting you, like taking off a hair shirt or getting out of a dungeon. What is there to be afraid of? You have long attempted, and none of us does more, a Christian life. Your sins are confessed and absolved. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Mm. That's so beautiful. Yeah. That's that's the wisdom of death that we saw in Out of the Silent Planet. I mean, Lewis is living it out. Mm -hmm. You know, I was I was curious your guys' thoughts on this. I know it's a controversial issue, but you know, two smart people here. And he, he says you've long attempted a Christian life. You've confessed your sin and absolved. What are, what are your guys' thoughts on just the confidence or the assurance? I don't know. Assurance is a bit of a charged word and theological debates, but I, I just think to myself, I mean, I, I, my fear of death is, is a little bit to do with, I'm not entirely sure. And I guess I just recognize I'm, I am doing my best. I do think I fall under what he just described, but I'm like, oh, I don't know. Well, the traditional Catholic way of responding to it would be not that we have an absolute certainty, but we have a moral certainty. Uh, St. Paul said of himself that he didn't know any account against himself, but that didn't necessarily mean that he was acquitted. But then at other times he speaks with confidence that he's departing from this life to be with Christ. Yeah, and I'm sorry. I'm trying to find a Till We Have Faces quote. Um, <laughs> it's Psyche talking about um, why death is a good choice. The, uh, the, about the getting out of a little room? Is that the one that you're going for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I think, what you look for that up, I think my fear is, David, going by with what St. Paul says, yeah, I'm not sure because of my confession, I'm not sure of like an account against me, but I think a subtler, a little bit more scary way is I'm not entirely sure of those things on earth I'm holding on to that aren't necessarily like blatantly obvious mortal sins, you've done this wrong, but it's like, I'm choosing this ahead of God in a way I don't really realize. I have never been put to the test to see if I really am. All of those things where maybe God is fifth in line and I have no idea. That's the part that scares me sometimes. 
It's like you have all these things you've built in your life that that comfort you. And you can tell yourself God is your number one. But when push comes to shove, is he really? Hmm. Well, speaking of till we have faces, we, we see there what self-delusion can do. But I would I would point to the thing that the deeper part of it is one's disposition. Uh, is 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 one disposed to throw oneself on the mercy of God or not? Mm-hmm. Yes, I would say I am there. Well, and she uh, and Psyche says, as for death, why Bardia will look on it six times a day and whistle a tune as he goes to find it. We have made little use of the fox's teaching if we're sca- to be scared by death. And death opens a door out of a little dark room, that's all the life we have known before it, into a great real place where the true sun shines and we shall meet. And she is going to death, but it's through death that, um, and through sacrifice. And she has a sense that it is, is through him. You know, sometimes in, you know, in my work, I'm faced with a great deal of illness and pain and certainly death. There's a funeral next week. No, it's a funeral tomorrow uh, in my parish. But as much as I don't like death and there's little comfort to offer to somebody uh, whose loved one has died, but as we face it, would I not go down the same path that my Lord went, right? He suffered pain and he suffered rejection and he suffered death and death was not too good for him. And why would I, uh, why would I think to avoid it? Uh, I can dread it perhaps and not wish it certainly upon myself or on those I love, but certainly it is the way that we will go through that door into the greater room. And throughout this entire section of Letters to American Lady, I've had Audrey Assad's Death Be Not Proud running through my head where Mm. she speaks about, um, so death, if your sleep be the gates to heaven, why your confidence? Um, And also the line from Till We Have Faces, die before you die. There is no time after. There you mm. go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Matt, you had some thoughts on the next letter as well. Yes. This one, I wanted to pull a bunch of stuff out. And so I'm going to break it in this section. But I mean, this letter has stuff on death, forgiveness, storing up treasures in heaven. I just, I just thought there's a lot of beauty in it. So I start here with this part. I'm overjoyed at the blessed change in your attitude to death. This is a bigger stride forward than perhaps you yourself yet know, for you were rather badly wrong on that subject. (laughs) Only a few months ago, when I said that we old people hadn't much more to do than to make a good exit, you were almost angry with me for what you called such a bitter remark. Thank God you now see it wasn't bitter, only plain common sense. Yes, I do wonder why the doctors inflict such torture to delay what cannot in any case be very long delayed, or why God does unless there is still something for you to do as far as weakness allows. So first of all, <laughs> I know Lewis, because he's so saint-like, he's nearing death, he meant that 100% charity. But if I'm reading that, it feels a <laughs> little direct. <laughs> if a just man strikes or approves me at his kindness. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he doesn't tell her he's wrong until after she realizes it for herself. <laughs> yes. So at least there's that. So now to the next part, though. That was just more fun, but I hope now that you know you are forgiven, you will spend most of your remaining strength in forgiving. Lay all the old resentments down at the wounded feet of Christ. Now remember, mm-hmm. he knows he's coming close to death. And so I just love that this is what he's thinking about. And we're going to see this later on, too, where he actually says that he felt like he was able finally to forgive 
uh, an individual to the fullness. And so just forgiveness is a big thing that Lewis brought to the near part of his death. Now, one final part on how we should approach every day. But oh, I do put you for waking up and finding yourself still on the wrong side of the door. How awful it must have been for poor Lazarus who had actually died, got it all over, and then was brought back to go through it all again, I suppose a few years later. I think he, not St. Stephen, ought really to be celebrated as the first martyr. Yeah. You but though say, I do pity you is what he said. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. You say too much of the very little I have been able to do for you. Perhaps you will very soon be able to repay me a thousandfold. For if this is goodbye, I am sure he will not forget, you will not forget me when you are in a better place. You'll put in a good word for me now and then, won't you? It will be fun when we last meet. There was just a beauty mm. to that too. I mean, it was just, it was like ready to go see an old friend, storing up treasures in heaven. Mm. Uh, come put a good word in for me. I mean, I, I really love that. And it is worth pointing out the fact that when we've spoken about Lewis anticipating death, Mary thinks she's for the grave sooner than him. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and that line about um, perhaps you'll very soon be able to repay me a thousandfold, it reminds me of a line from St. Therese of Lisieux. She says, upon my death, I will let fall a shower of roses. I wish to spend my heaven in doing good upon the earth. Mm. Well, yes, there is actually a poem and I'd like to read it. I don't know when it was written. I'll have to do some research on that. But Lewis wrote a poem on this very idea and it's short. It's about Stephen, who is, of course, acknowledged as the first martyr that we get in the book of Acts, um, to Lazarus, who died and then was raised from the dead and had to die again. And here's what Lewis says, Stephen to Lazarus, but was I the first martyr who gave up no more than life, while you, already free among the dead, your rags stripped off, your fetters shed, surrendered what all other men irrevocably keep, and when your battered ship at anchor lay, seemingly safe in the dark bay, no ripple stirs, obediently put out a second time to sea, well knowing that your death in vain died once must all be died again. Mm. So he looks at Lazarus as being the first martyr because he, for to prove the resurrection and to be the ground of that site, I am the resurrection and the life, had to be summoned forth from the, the rest of death and then had to die all over again knowing what it was like. Mm. And Matt, you're on a roll. I see you marked out the next letter as well. <laughs> yes. This one, oh, the language in here is so beautiful. Think of yourself just as a seed, patiently waiting in the earth, waiting to come up, a flower in the gardener's good time, up into the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, looked back on from there, will seem only a drowsy half-waking. We are here in the land of dreams, but cock crow is coming. Tis nearer when I begin the letter. Yes. There's so much in here, but the very first part, the seed metaphor. I just love the seed metaphor. It's just, it's, it creates a lot of hope that you're, you're, you're in a journey and a process. You're not at a destination right now. I loved the gardener's good time. It's like God is a gardener and his good time. He will figure this all out. So just be patient, keep growing every day, allow him to water you. Allow yourself to be pruned and just wait for the gardener uh, to bring you up into the real world. 
And that made me think of ultimate reality. That made me think of the great divorce. That made me think of all that. Well, and think of this too. How does a gardener begin? What is the first thing that he does if he wants flowers or fruit? He plants the seed. In the ground. Mm -hmm. He digs a hole for it and buries it. Mm -hmm. Right? This mm -hmm. is only the preferatory and short life and the life, uh, <laughs> our life, uh, Lewis says in Weight of Glory, uh, our, our life compared to the life of a cathedral or a civilization is like being compared to a gnat. Those things are mortal and, and temporal and will end, but our life will never end. And we only have this life to do what good we can and accept what grace we can. How often will we regret if our tears weren't wiped away in heaven that we complained about the cross that we were able to bear this is the only time that we can do those things and so let us do those with good goodwill and good heart and good courage mm. the cock crow is coming it is nearer now than when i began this letter amen and matt you have notes on the next letter as well Yes, yes, yes. I know there's so much good stuff. He was wearing his What Would David Do bracelet. Uh, <laughs> do you know, only a few weeks ago, I realized that at last had I forgiven the cruel schoolmaster who so darkened my childhood. This time I feel it is the real thing. And the moment it does happen, it seems so easy. And you wonder why on earth you didn't do it years ago. So the parable of the unjust judge comes true. And what has been vainly asked for years can suddenly be granted. I also get a quite new feeling about if you forgive, you will be forgiven. I do not believe it is, as it sounds, a bargain. The forgiving and the being forgiven are really the very same thing. But one is safe as long as one keeps trying. I just... You know, it can't, it just goes back to that forgiveness. I mean, what, what if you had to ask yourself, what's the thing that's on Lewis's mind when he's dying? Like we kind of had the answer here. So much is forgiving, letting go of these <laughs> petty pride, ego driven <laughs> vanity type things. <laughs> he, what's on his mind is cats who never forgive anything. <laughs> <laughs> cats and forgiveness. You're right. And his own and need to forgive everything. <laughs> but I do think that last sentence is absolutely crucial, but one is safe as long as one keep trying. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it expressed the, the interior disposition. Yes. yes. If their intention is only to walk, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Mm. That's why I tell people that it's called practicing religion, because practice is where you don't get it right, but you keep trying. Well, let me see if I can take this home, because sort of really the next set of letters outline Lewis's decline. In July, Mary seems to have heard some good medical news, but seems to have spent a lot of time complaining about the doctor. And Lewis very gently tries to encourage her to see things from his point of view, from the doctor's point of view of being overworked and having to explain complex biochemistry to a patient without any background knowledge. And regarding Lewis's health, he now has swollen ankles, which unfortunately is a sign that something is wrong. So he says he'll be seeing a doctor the following day, and he's rather worried that this will mean that he won't be able to go to Ireland next week as he had planned. And he signs off with a little bit of dark humour about the possibility of their friends starting a death lottery for the two of them. He writes, <laughs> Our friends might really get up a sweepstake as to whose train really will go first. <laughs> well, and he, uh, he did 
he he did have to miss his trip to Ireland. And yeah. in talking about the doctor, part of what happens with him is that he's getting treatment, some treatment from Dr. Havard. In fact, it's around this time, it's during the course of these letters, that because he's having kidney problems, Dr. Havard hooks him up with a catheter and a catheter bag, I guess. Um, and Lewis wears it to a faculty party and it mm. comes all undone. And so he's got, you know, he makes a mess of himself there in public. And um, Dr. Havard was perhaps not the, not the sharpest of medical practitioners. Um, and I know that we've had our, uh, we, we've had on our guest before who's done some work on, on Dr. Haver, but he misdiagnosed, um, Joy Davidman, I believe. And there were some faults in his medical practice. Um, and some of those cost Lewis. And so when he talks about forgiveness, I put it in that context. He says in another letter to someone else, the deuced thing about forgiveness is that you do it all uh, on Monday and then by Tuesday or Wednesday, you have to do it all over again. And so he keeps meeting with Dr. Havard, who has failed him significantly, both with his wife and with himself, and he keeps a soft and tender heart uh, towards him. And he's really trying at the end of his life um, to practice this forgiveness, and he's getting close to the one who died to forgive us all. And so maybe there's hope for the rest of us too. And a week later, Lewis writes to say that, yep, he's got to go into hospital that afternoon. He's feeling very tired and unable to concentrate for very long. And he ends with this warning. He says, don't expect to hear much from me. You might as well expect a lecture on Hegel from a drunk man. And anyone that's ever tried to read Hegel will understand why that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> a little later, there's a hurried letter sent to Mary. Um, it's at the end of the month and by the hand of our very own Walter Hooper. He says that Jack doesn't have sufficient motor skills to write at the moment. And he says also that uh, he says his physical crisis has greatly disordered his intelligence and he is vividly aware of living in a world of hallucinations, hmm. which has actually got a wonderful double meaning if one takes Lewis's Platonism uh, into view, that we are only in the Shadowlands. Hmm. But about a fortnight later, Walter sends a more orderly letter explaining everything that's happened. He says that Lewis entered the Ackland nursing home on July 15th. He had a heart attack during the night and fell into a coma for nearly 24 hours, with the doctors holding out very little hope for his survival. He then says that he received extreme unction, so he was anointed with oil by his local priest, in preparation for this expected death. Well, I love it. He receives extreme unction, and instead he regains consciousness an hour later and asks for his tea. <laughs> <laughs> he then enters a period of time when he's very confused but three weeks after entering the facility he regains some of his strength and his rational faculties and on august 6th he's returned home but with a nurse and we've spoken about the jokes that he played on this nurse with regards to all of his books from cambridge i can't remember what episode that was in but it's very funny walter says that lewis has resigned his position from cambridge that's why he empties out the books. And Walter concludes with the following lines. Professor Lewis regrets that he's unable at this time, and probably for a long time, to answer your letters. He is very much concerned for you, and prays that you may have courage for whatever may be yours, both in the present and in the future. And then there's just one very short letter on August 30th. And this time it's Jack writing, saying that he is quite comfortable, but very easily tired. And this is the last letter that he sends to Mary before his death 
on November twenty mm-hmm. second later that year. Mm-hmm. Well, he really lived uh, September October, so another like ten weeks. Was he in a pretty vegetable type of state? I mean, not vegetable, but um, pretty worn down state for that period. Or what was he? You know, I wish that somebody had a first edition of the letters that contains Warney's memoir that has uh, something to say about that. Um, Our talk tended to be cheerfully reminiscent during these last days. Long forgotten incidents in our shared past would be remembered, and the old Jack would return for a moment, whimsical and witty. We were recapturing the old schoolboy technique of exacting, extracting the last drop of juice from our holidays. And just before that, uh, he says, In their way, these last weeks were not unhappy. Joy had left us, and once again, as in the earliest days, we could turn for comfort only to each other. The wheel had come full circle. Once again, we were together in the little end room at home, shutting out from our talk the ever-present knowledge that the holidays were ending, that a new term fraught with unknown possibilities awaited us both. Back, Jack faced the prospect bravely and calmly. I have done all I wanted to do, and I'm ready to go, he said to me one evening. Friday, the 22nd of November, 1963, began much as other days. There was breakfast, then letters, and the crossword puzzle. After lunch, he fell asleep in his chair. I suggested he would be more comfortable in bed, and he went there. At four, I took in his tea and found him drowsy but comfortable. Our few words then were the last. At 5.30, I heard a crash and ran in to find him lying unconscious, unconscious on the, at the foot of his, of his bed. He ceased to breathe some three or four minutes later. The following Friday would have been his 64th birthday. Even in that terrible moment, the thought flashed across my mind that whatever fate had in store for me, nothing worse than this could ever happen to me in the future. Men must endure their going hence. This is, I think, the same hour, if I've worked out the time right. I think that um, the the difference between um, Dallas, Texas and Oxford, I think it's six hours. And so yeah. if Kennedy was shot at, um, at 1230, um, uh, so Jack dies about an hour before Kennedy is shot. Um, and so that's how he remembered it. He kind of was drowsy and, and in, but still answering letters, even the, the week that he died and doing his crossword puzzle and still with memories, um, exchange with Warney. Uh, a sweet way, I think, to go. He was in the music room. If you ever go to the kilns and go in the front door, common room to the left, dining room on the right, and then a hallway and just a little to the right is the music room. Um, it had been Maureen's room, and in his last days, it was Jack's room. The first, My first night ever in England, I was invited to the kilns, and I got to stay in that room where Jack passed away. Um, and it's a bright and airy room uh, to this day. Hmm. I thought it was interesting how Warney described their time together as a return to childhood yeah. where they're, they're sucking the marrow out of the holidays before the term begins. Because in another yes. book, which we're going to read later this season, I'd actually say that the, the truth is actually spelt out by Jack himself. Uh, that mm. at this moment, he says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is yes. ended. 
this is the morning. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Well, we will have a Wonderful. retro episode once we've read the other two collections of letters, uh, letters to children and the Latin letters. But any closing thoughts about letters to an American lady? Hmm. I would just take it as an encouragement to live that kind of life, um, to live with the kind of cheerful insecurity Lewis encouraged us to, uh, that even our difficulties are frightfully good for us and that our maker intends far better things for us uh, once we do um, shed our skin, once the train leads, leaves the station, and once we go to our true home, our true country that we've been longing for all of our life. Well then. Next month, we're going to be sharing a bunch of After Hours episodes, beginning with Matt's interview of Dr. Joe Rigney about Lewis on the Christian life. Please stick around to the end of this episode after the sign-off, because I'm going to be reading another of Mary Willis Shelburne's poems. Last time I read one about Christmas, and this time I'm going to read one about Epiphany and the visit of the Magi. But I do hear the call for final drinks. So thanks to our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to uh, Julia, our intern. Thanks to our listeners and patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Alex, James, Matt, Erica, Joelle, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for our listeners and particularly on every Tuesday with all of the prayer requests in our Slack channel. If you've enjoyed this episode, please order a friend a copy of Letters to an American Lady. They can read it in the new year. And please join us again next time. When we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. 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 By the way, if you order your book today, it will still arrive in time for Christmas, which doesn't end until January 6th. (laughs) (laughs) Splendor in Bethlehem by Mary Willis Shelburne. They come in stately caravan from distant places of the earth, journeying to Bethlehem in search of one whose star-told birth has brought these eastern kings to see the king of kings on Mary's knee. Their wisdom rives the curtain spread by simplicity around, the baby and his mother led of God true royalty they found, and bending low their gifts they bring to honour Christ, the newborn king. <laughs>